You're listening to Nearly Departed. Every episode's story stands on its own, but the universe of Nearly Departed will make more sense if you start with the first episode. Chapter 2 The Green Glove Cabaret Dear Gwen, The vines were so overgrown that the door to the old cabaret was completely hidden. Sitting in my car, I double-checked the address, making sure it was the right place. It was the last shop in a small row of old-fashioned two-story brick storefronts deep in Germantown, a historic district around the Houston Heights. It was surrounded by neighborhood, beautiful Victorian Queen Anne's and charming little craftsmen. Though I was surrounded by homes, which people must have lived in, It felt like a ghost town. There were no human beings in sight, leaving the houses to sit like tombstones. My name is Emma. I'm in the theater community here in Houston, mostly costumes and makeup. But I also run a ghost tour business in the fall. I don't scare easily. I've been doing ghost investigations for years casually, and I got married in a cemetery. Dark, scary shit is my thing. It's my comfort zone. But this is one of the more fucked up stories I have. I used my phone to record so I know exactly what happened. It was an especially hot spring day, and the gray sky above held the humidity in the air like a lid over a terrarium. After a while of waiting, a sleek black car pulled up next to the side of the overgrown building and an older man in a stiff, untucked button-down and jeans emerged. His eyes were hidden behind dark glasses with wire frames. He grabbed a bag from a hardware store in his back seat and unlocked the side entrance of the building. This must be Shelby Martin. A theater friend had put us in contact. I'm always looking for blog content or a potential new stop for the ghost tour. My friend Lacey said I should get together with Shelby, a set designer she had worked with who was restoring a cabaret rumored to be haunted, so I emailed him. He was a little stiff in our exchanges, but he ultimately invited me to come see his progress and chat. After I watched him find an entrance among the vines, I followed and gently knocked as I walked in. He didn't smile when he saw me, but sort of grimaced in acknowledgement and gestured to one of the chairs at the small, round, black table he had dropped his bag of extension cords on. The space felt bigger on the inside, and dark. I noticed immediately it was probably twenty degrees cooler inside than out. It was mostly empty, the heavily used black and white checkered linoleum flooring uninterrupted except for our little table. The walls were painted a dusty, dark emerald, and were densely collaged with frames containing playbills and vintage headshots and performance photos. The ceiling was a flat black, like the small stage to our right, which curved in a half-moon, golden clamshell footlights along the edge. Heavy, dusty red curtains framed the small stage space, looking as though they would pull down their supports at any moment. Oh, wow. I breathed. I couldn't help it. The atmosphere inside was palpable, the way some theaters are, even though it was mostly empty. So this is the green glove, he said, as he pushed his sunglasses back brusquely and sat. Nice to meet you in person, Shelby. I'm Emma, of course. Thank you for making time for me. I'm really excited to hear about this place. 
I joined him at the small table. Up close, I could see his silky brown hair had a few millimeters of white peeking out at the root. He had sharp hazel eyes, framed by eyebrows that completely disappeared into his skin. They were so pale, making his eyes more startling. I pulled my notebook from my tote bag. And you write for the Chronicle? The Houstonian? Oh no, I have a ghost tour company. This would be for our blog. Gulf Coast Ghosts? He stared at me, unsure of how seriously to take me. I decided not to give him a chance to decide. So what brought you to purchase the Green Glove? Theater? Cabaret? Which one? Cabaret. Well, he wondered for a moment. About a year ago, I was asked to participate in a fundraising event to find a location and build any sets, control the atmosphere. He sat deeper into his chair and crossed his ankle over to rest on his knee. He wore big leather flip-flops. We decided to do kind of a Midsummer Night's Dream theme in a really tight, small space, really opulent, very inspired by turn-of-the-century theaters, Isadora Duncan. More like a photography set than a theater set, he said. Sounds beautiful. Yes. We were looking for old theater spaces, and I found an article about the fire here in the 30s. Oh? The place was so dim and cold, it felt like it was more likely it might start raining inside than ever create the conditions for a fire. Oh, yes. Shelby rubbed his eyes roughly and walked behind a small bar to the left of the stage. He poured himself a pale amber drink from a curvaceous blue bottle that would have looked at home in I Dream of Jeannie's Lamp. It was barely 11 a.m. I've never seen such a fancy milk jug. Oh, I'm a growing boy, he said, throwing the drink back, and the bottle disappeared behind the bar. I was unsettled by that. I retreated a little further into myself, the way you do with people you realize you need to treat delicately. He went on to describe the fire. It was in 31. They sold hooch with their shows during Prohibition. For medicinal purposes, of course. They don't know what started the fire, probably some candle on the curtains, or a grease-soaked rag, or a cigarette. Most people got out. But there's only one exit, no windows just that little door we came through, and by the time the blaze had really gotten comfortable, the performers in the dressing room were trapped. A couple escaped through the attic onto the roof, but most of them died. He spoke casually, as if he were filling me in on the state of the insulation. I felt like I had been injected with ice. That's horrific. Mm Mm-hmm. Sat there for a while, then became some awful comedy club in the 80s, responsible for this charming linoleum. Then a developer bought it in the early 2000s and just sat on it. But I saw the photos from the 30s, and I had to have it. So I bought it. He shrugged. What was the first thing that happened to make you believe it was haunted? He thought for a moment and seemed to wrestle with his decision. About a week after I had bought it, I was cleaning and stripping paint and going through everything, so I decided to stay the night so I wouldn't have to drive all the way back to West U. And that night I sat up in the back corner there. He pointed to his right behind the bar. Just a sleeping bag and a lantern. It must have been about 3 or 4 a.m., and I'm half woken up because I can hear people. Well, it was a party, actually. I heard glasses clinking and people laughing and talking with each other. I wasn't dreaming, he said sharply. I nodded earnestly. But I opened my eyes, and it was blurry, but I could see people moving around in the darkness. The room was full. And I have this feeling 
It was like dread or panic. Just a feeling like I was in serious danger. And I kept waiting for my eyes to focus, but my vision was still blurry. I even, I remember, I looked at my phone and looked at the time and the date, and it was blurry in front of me, fully lit, along with my hands, but blurry. And there's all these people around. I didn't know what was happening. It sounds like a dream, but I I, I did look at my phone and, and the time and date were correct. It just felt like a nightmare, but it wasn't one. What did you do? I asked. Though he had finished his drink, he stayed standing behind the bar, putting a good deal of distance between himself and me. I went back to sleep, and when I woke up, everything was fine, exactly as it had been. I could see. It didn't make me think the place was haunted, necessarily. It was just the first time something... Well, it was the first time the green glove showed me its personality. I raised my eyebrows. And what was the next time it showed you its personality? I asked. He laughed loudly to himself. He was really loosening up. Actually, the very next day... I was upstairs, which is storage, and I was trying to make a path through the boxes and drop into the dumpster outside anything that had no value. I was going through this wooden filing cabinet, and I found one drawer just stuffed with scores for old musicals and reviews, and I fell through the floor, right there. He pointed at a patch of the ceiling that looked to be a slightly different shade of black than the rest. Rotten wood. It could hold a thousand-pound filing cabinet and dusty set pieces for a hundred years, but not me. And you think that was... I'm not done, he said, a placid smile growing on his mouth. I really, really did not like this man, he continued. So my legs go down, but only my legs. I dangle there for a minute, trying to pull myself up. And as I'm trying to pull, I can feel it's like a bug crawling up my legs. I tried to jerk my legs around to get it off, but when I tired myself out and stopped moving, I could feel that it was actually a hand stroking my leg down to my ankle. I yell, who's there, you know, Scooby-Doo shit, but nothing and no one, of course. And I actually felt it slip under my jeans and just sort of trail its nails over my ankle. It felt like a woman's hands or a pair of claws, who knows? So I'm tired from jerking around, but I give it one last heave and I pull myself up onto the floor upstairs. And when I get my legs up, my ankles are covered in bloody scratches. It was probably just the rotten wood scraping me on the way down, but I don't think so. I sat stunned. We were silent for a moment. Until I jumped at a scuffling sound over the stage. My head snapped to the sound and I saw that it was a bird flying chaotically from the stage lights and their rigging above. Where the fuck did that come from? Oh, he must have snuck in somehow, Shelby said, as he went to open the door. He turned a push broom in the corner upside down to shoo it out. So it was just silently sitting since we've been here? Shelby didn't answer, but tried to nudge the bird to the small door. The bird was obstinate and just flew from light to light, pole to pole. Eventually, Shelby stopped. It'll fly out eventually. I'll just leave the door open. The outdoor light painted the dust particles white in its path, but the sunlight barely made a dent in the darkness of the space, like it was swallowed. I was starting to feel a little bit sick. Shelby, on the other hand, seemed to be relaxing the more he shared his story, as if he was talking about the hijinks of a favorite son. 
I tried to refocus, but I couldn't stop looking at the bird in the lights. Um... So what renovations are you working on? I asked, trying to bring some lightness into the conversation. Oh, you want to see something really marvelous? My new obsession. He walked past me. I followed him onto the stage and into the little stage left wing where there was a door. He opened it and led me into a dressing room with three or four vanity seats. It would have been pitch black inside if not for the buzz of the weak, orange lights of the bulbs around the vanity mirrors he flipped on. The room was very small, and I was standing much closer to him than I otherwise would have. He smelled of alcohol. I wondered if he had been drinking all morning. I considered for a moment if I had made a huge mistake coming to this place. I had actually been considering that since I first saw him. Look at this, he said, pointing to the back wall. There was a strip of what looked like antique wallpaper that went from the ground to the ceiling but was only about 20 inches wide. It was a pattern of a kind of dripping fern shape, gold and green, turned sickly by the vanity lights. It's incredible it survived, I said. My tone had the delicacy of talking to a sleepwalker. It was behind some wooden shelves that they had built into the wall. The fire didn't get it, and the comedy club people just slapped paint over the room, but I was able to rip out the shelves and find it. He pressed his hands lovingly against the old wallpaper. He was behaving more and more as if I wasn't there, as if the theater was playing him a lullaby that I couldn't hear. The dressing room was bathed in orange from the bulbous lights, and the new chairs and racks he had put in cast harsh shadows on the walls. I realized with a chill this must have been the room where the performers had died. It was so small. The smoke had probably accumulated and killed them far quicker than the flames. I hoped so, at least. I had seen a video of a house fire done by a fire department around Thanksgiving to teach fire safety around the holidays. The room they lit up got to 500 degrees very quickly. I looked at the round vanity mirrors and noticed the framed photographs in a row above them. They were black and white photos of performances on the little stage we had crossed to get here. One in particular caught my eye, of a woman in a Bo Peep looking dress and bonnet overflowing with blonde curls performing with a man dressed similarly, posing, either singing or speaking in whatever raunchy old comedy they had been putting up. In my mind, I saw their joyful, dramatic faces, pale with stage makeup, hitting the hard ground, mouths agape and eyes staring, their organs shutting down as the room turned into an oven. If sweet meat is candy, sweet bread must be meat. If sweet meat is candy, sweet bread must be meat. I shook my head sharply. Where had that come from? That did not come from me. It felt like someone spoke in my mind. It took me a moment to realize Shelby had still been talking while I was distracted. I tried to inconspicuously start listening again. He didn't seem to notice. But I'm fortunate enough to have people in the design industry that have the kinds of skills to reproduce it almost exactly. Modern wallpaper is hardly more expensive, so why not do it right, you know? I couldn't answer. I looked around the room and took a few steps towards the door, away from the Bo Peep couple who I could no longer look at. Their white faces and large black lined eyes. Eyes melt, hunters melt, I jerked my head again. What the fuck was going on? I had quite the experience in this room, you know, Shelby said suddenly, present with me again. Oh yeah? I asked, trying to get my bearings. 
I stood where the light from the theater bled a bit into the dressing room, but he was planted in the corner, the dim orange light carving shapes into his face with shadows. I wanted us to leave, to go into the theater, but something stopped me. I felt panic rise in me, but I ignored it. I don't know why I ignored it. I told myself there was nothing happening. It was just a chat with a well-known theater professional in an empty theater. But it started to feel hard to swallow. Oh yes, I had quite the experience in here. I was working in the theater, and I heard muffled screaming. The most ungodly screams you can imagine. Like the way children scream, but from very far away. I realized the sound was coming from this direction, so I ran inside, wondering if it was the business next door, but it stopped right as I walked in. He continued his story. The dressing room was empty, still, dark. It felt as though the atmosphere had been sucked out of it. I turned to look back at the door, and standing in the darkness in the doorframe was a man, he said, placid as ever. I looked to my left at the doorframe sharply. He continued. He was very, very thin, and he wore a suit with sharp, angular shoulders and a very small waist like an inverted triangle. He had a fedora on, like a cartoon gangster or something. He had his hands on either side of the doorframe. He was mostly in shadow, but I could see that his thin face was pockmarked and like his skin was just barely holding onto his skull. He was like an illustration or like a German expressionist villain. Shelby stared past me at the doorframe as he was describing the man, clearly seeing him in his mind's eye. He went on with his story. I meant to say hello, but it just couldn't escape my mouth. I didn't know who or what I was talking to. We both just stood there, and slowly the mirror lights started to get brighter and brighter. He starts getting bathed in that orange light. And then, it was like he was speaking underwater, muffled and distorted. If sweet meat is candy, sweet, sweet bread candy, must be meat. Sweet bread sweet must be meat. Sweet meat is candy, sweet bread must be meat. Shelby and I stared at each other for a moment. A putrid, sinking feeling had settled somewhere in my feet ever since Shelby had started describing the man. And then he was gone. Just like that, he said, making a poof motion with his hands. I stared at Shelby. I think I need to go. My words felt foreign coming out of my mouth, slow and sluggish. The nausea I'd been tiptoeing around was now undeniable. Directly above us, an out-of-tune piano's keys plucked slowly. I looked up sharply at the ceiling, then back at Shelby's face for an explanation. This was outrageous. What is that? Did you leave your computer up there or something? I asked, remembering how my old laptop would start to play paused YouTube videos randomly sometimes. He raised his non-existent eyebrows and smiled mischievously, shaking his head that he hadn't. Okay, fuck this, I said, and though it felt like moving through molasses, I pushed out of the dressing room, onto the stage, and out the door. The overcast brightness and heat melted the horrible molasses feeling off of me almost instantly. I wanted to key his shiny black car for taking me to this place, but I just hurried past into my own where I tried to keep myself from throwing up in the grass. 
I leaned on my car in the shade of the trees overhead and took deep breaths. I looked back at the vine-covered brick building. There was no sign of Shelby. He wasn't running after me, worried. It felt like he and the green glove were laughing at me inside. I looked hard at the structure and spat on the ground. P.S. I lit a candle and said a prayer for the people who had died there, but I won't be returning, and I suggest you don't go looking for it. Best, Emma Lang. After Gwen finished reading the letter aloud, she met Oscar's eyes. They shared an expression of shock and disgust. They were on their spacious porch, and Oscar was filling the large urns and pots scattered about with their early fall inhabitants, large purple and green cabbages, lavender asters, and the fluffy tendrils of goldenrod. Bags of soil slumped against the old porch fence, and several of their cats were milling around it, sniffing and investigating. Well, Oscar said, clapping his gardening gloves together to shake loose clumps of dirt. That was horrible. Thank you. And you don't know the person who sent it at all? There's nothing else there? No. Just like Miss Kandinsky's letters, I have no idea how she knew to write to me. A poofy black Persian cat popped up to the bench swing she was sitting on and onto Gwen's outstretched legs. It settled into a loaf between her shins. The sky was blue and full of bulbous clouds, and a surprisingly crisp breeze whistled through the old wraparound porch. Autumn was unmistakably approaching, and Gwen could hardly wait to use the cavernous fireplace together for the first time, although it would be strange and hollow to try it without Miss Kandinsky perched as she did in her large armchair, knitting or crocheting in the warm light, and introducing Gwen to the proper preparation of a drinking vinegar, or asking her to read the old Hollywood gossip books she had. But the darkness of the short days of winter was still a ways away. It was time now to prepare for the slowing of the clock, to sweep out the home, beat the rugs, weed the garden, make new candles, and melt down the old. Gwen looked up from the cat on her legs to see their neighbor Shay pulling into their driveway. They shared a wave as Shay emerged, unbuckling her daughter Leah from her car seat. Leah was gripping a stuffed jack-o'-lantern decoration with its tag still clipped to its stem. Looks like they weren't the only ones preparing for fall. When she caught sight of Gwen and Oscar on the porch, she made her tiny dimpled face into a snarl and hollered, Boo! Thanks for listening to Nearly Departed. This show is written, edited, and produced by me, Katie Wiggins, which is a very labor-intensive process, so rating and reviewing is a great way to throw independent podcasters a bone and a little bit of thanks. I also have great t-shirt and merch designs available for this show, as well as my other podcast, Scary Stories from Camp Roanoke, which is true ghost stories that we tell uh, in a more humorous, lighthearted way. You can find all of this in one place at the TeePublic link in the description. And if you'd like to get in contact with me, you can email me at dearmisskandinsky at gmail.com. Until next time, you sweet little creeps. (laughs) 